Research Pages, a podcast all about supporting academic research. I'm Neve Page, a librarian at the University of Cambridge. And I'm Andrew Page, a computer scientist from the Quadrum Institute. We are both information professionals supporting research, but coming from very different angles. We hope you enjoy listening. This week, we want to talk about resources you can use for research. So Neve, why does it matter? And surely we can all use Google and Google Scholar and we'll all be happy as Larry. Well, it's like any other part of the research process. You need to think about what tool or method is the best one for the job that you're doing. So sometimes if you're doing a quick search, yes, Google's absolutely fine. If you know what you're looking for, you just want to find an open access version of a known article, Google's fine. Or even if you just want to get a gist of some of the terms that might be used in relation to a certain field of research, You can use Google for that sort of thing. And a bit of Wikipedia. And a bit of Wikipedia. But if you wanted to look more systematically for the scholarship that's out there, or if you want to make sure that you have found all the material that might be relevant to your research, Google Scholar is not the best way to do that. So if you do want to do something more systematically, there are better tools for that, like bibliographic databases. Okay, what is a bibliographic database? A bibliographic database is basically a massive list of references. They've been collected together, usually curated in some way, and they've been given keywords. They've been set up in a way that enables more careful, deliberate searching. For example, you could search for anything by a particular author or any research from a particular institution. You can search by field. You can use Boolean operators to get more specific about how you're searching. You're getting very fancy there to Booleans. (laughs) Well, I'm talking to a computer scientist. I'd be rude if you didn't know Boolean. (laughs) So can I ask, um, who does the curation of these systems? It depends on the system itself. So each of the different databases will have their own set of criteria that they use to decide whether a resource should be in their collection. And same as everything else, just because a journal is in one of these databases doesn't automatically mean the journal is absolutely perfect and every article in it is absolutely perfect. Is that why spam journals always put in, oh, we're in this particular index to show how good they are? Well, I think they are trying to do it to borrow some legitimacy. But I mean, we see even in the top journals that there are problematic papers. We've talked about that before. Absolutely, yeah. So the free databases that I know about are things like Google Scholar. And in my field, it's PubMed. PubMed Mm -hmm. is a huge one. And that's run by the US government. And I personally love Google Scholar. It's my first port of call when I need a paper because it indexes everything. And it's not just your actual final papers that are published, it's all the other versions of the papers and maybe an author is deposited somewhere else and often they're grouped together so it's quite easy then to find a version. And hopefully the author is actually on Google and they've gone and manually curated their list of publications which makes it really, really easy then to look it up. Unfortunately, a lot of people aren't on Google Mm -hmm. and on Google Scholar so that makes it quite difficult. So I agree that a lot is indexed, but actually you yourself seem to have forgotten that not everything is indexed in Google. Give me an example earlier on. One example of something that Google doesn't index is EBI. Mm -hmm. And that's a resource that contains petabytes of genomic data. And of course, if you go and do a Google search, it's not going to come back. And the reason is because it puts such a huge load on their internal systems to pull down such vast quantities of data that it's just not feasible so you have to go then to and to the ebi's website and then do searches through their own highly tuned uh, domain specific search engine 
different databases. I know you've talked a bit about institutional repositories like DSpace and things like that. So how do I access those? So those are the same as the EBI one you mentioned. You can Anybody can access those. They're freely available on the web. And is ePrints just in the same vein as DSpace? Yeah, there are quite a few different solutions for repositories. The other thing is there are databases that are freely available, even if you're not affiliated with an institution. So you can upload things to Zenodo, which is a CERN. Oh, yeah, I've used Zenodo a few times yeah. for different datasets. Yeah, exactly. So then you get your DOI, which makes it possible to link to a specific dataset, put that permanent link into your article rather than having lots of people having to contact you directly for the data. Yeah, I've used Figshare as well, which is quite useful. I really like Figshare. It is a commercial product, so there's oh, always a question yeah it's from the same guys that did dimensions and not metric and those kinds of ones oh those are actually quite cool it's digital science I, I actually really like a lot of what digital science have been doing i suppose the main point of this talk is more about the databases that are to do with the literature rather than the data so i guess possibly the first thing i do is i look for a, a thread mm -hmm. so it might be what is the main paper in the area mm -hmm. and i'll go maybe look on google scholar with a few search terms Pick a paper that's highly cited or something that someone has recommended. Read that. Look the references for that. And, you know, mm -hmm. you kind of start to follow that. It's a bit laborious, but at least you have a general idea of how to get started. Or even if it's a new area, I might even just go to Wikipedia if it's a big enough topic and read that to get a general sense. Mm -hmm. Because that'll generally cite the main papers. After that, well, I don't do the type of systematic searches that you get with um, say medicine, I generally would, you know, go and search maybe PubMed mm. and follow a few things there using the most obvious keywords. But I know you've said in the past that a, a librarian can find stuff out of nowhere and <laughs> using slightly obscure keywords. I don't know, well, how, how does that magic work? <laughs> well, I don't think it's magic. I think it's something everybody can do. It's just a case of thinking through what the keywords are that are related to your research. Using one of these bibliographic databases I mentioned, the two big ones we have access to are in the university are Web of Science and Scopus. Oh, yeah. And then you can really plan your search and use Boolean logic in case anyone is listening that hasn't used it. You use the words and, or, or not in between your keywords so that you can get really, really specific. So for example, if you if you put in a keyword and you get millions of results and lots of them aren't relevant, maybe you want to put, I don't know, genomics and give me another keyword, something you might want to search. Microbial. Microbial. Okay, so you've already narrowed it down a bit. Or you could do exact phrase searches by putting it in inverted commas and say microbial genomics and get exactly that phrase back. Or if it was still giving you too much, or if it was giving you loads and loads of results still, and loads of them were about, I don't know, the wet lab procedures or something, rather mm. than, and you were interested in the programming side, you could add a not protocol or something or okay. you could come up with you i mean you know this field better than i do yeah, but you yeah. come up with I, I the mean, it makes, that makes, it makes a lot of sense yeah yeah but obviously you need a certain type of database to be able to do that kind of high-powered searching you can't mm. necessarily do it with just free text to data mine data where the context is missing so Neve, you mentioned something called an open access button and unpaywall what is that i mean is that some kind of magic uh, sci-hub <laughs> thing no, it's got nothing to do with Sci-Hub, which we would never recommend ever because it's illegal. 
so I'm not going to talk about Sci-Hub anymore. With Open Access Button and Unpaywall, you can install a plugin into your browser. When you find your paper, and even if you use Google Scholar, maybe it hasn't picked up the free version, you can click on the Open Access Button and it will try and go off and find, is this paper in somebody's institutional repository? Is it in Archive? Is it in PubMed Central? And it'll try and serve you up the openly available version of That's that paper. That's really cool. So it's like a yeah. really intelligent search. And it does, well, it goes another step beyond that. And it will even send a message to the author and ask them to make it openly available if they haven't already. So it's also useful in encouraging people to improve that. There's also a plugin called Lean Library, which does a similar thing and uses the unpaywall data. And what that does is when you do your search and you find your article that's behind a paywall, if you click on the Lean Library one, it will try and find either an open access version or the paid content. So actually, if your university already has the subscription to that journal, it will bring you to the actual published version as well. That's really handy. I I never knew about that. I've tested it a bit, but I haven't tested it systematically enough to know what proportion of papers are not linked in this way. But I figure with these browser buttons, they can only help improve. Even if they can't solve everything, it's a big step forward compared with always hitting a please pay $29 message. Or even please rent for 48 hours and pay a ridiculous amount of money. It's nonsense. There are a lot of uh, databases behind paywalls and I've used some of them like Scopus and Web of Science. So what's the difference between those two? My sense from having used both of them is that Web of Science tends to include a lot more of the social science research as well. Scopus tends to include more technical papers and conference proceedings. That might be just the search terms I've used. I'd have to actually look at the content to say more definitively. There's also some of the functionalities different. So Web of Science has a tool that allows you to see the connections between authors as a web. So some people really like that. I really like the idea, but I haven't found it useful to work with. What I have found really helpful is what Scopus does around enabling analysis of your results. So if you've done your search and you've got a set of papers that look pretty much exactly what you need to read, you can then go in to analyze this data set and then it'll start bringing out how frequently the keyword searches have been used, how the, how the interest in a field has grown over time. It'll flag which areas are studying. Well, so I'm involved in librarianship, of course, and lots of teaching. Maybe there's something around information management skills and I've been looking up the library literature. I know all the key people in this field. That's great. I do a search in one of these databases and I discover, oh, there's loads of people in teaching in secondary schools that are doing this that I didn't know existed because they're not in the library field necessarily. So it's, it's that kind of discovering whole areas that are studying the same thing as you, but from a different angle. Both those databases do so that. So breaking out of your silos. Yeah, it really helps with that. One of the challenges with that is sometimes the different silos are also using different terms to mean the same thing. So really interesting moment when I was talking to somebody in the engineering department who was studying personal knowledge management. Sounds reasonable. Well, I asked her what she meant by that and she really was describing information literacy. And it's a perfectly reasonable term to use for the same, how well you can manage and work with information. Perfectly reasonable to call that knowledge management. Not something that would have come up if I'd been doing a literature search. 
I know one very useful thing that you have uh, shown me how to do is given a paper, you can look at all of the authors mm-hmm. and co-authors and then what institutions they're from and yeah. you can kind of start to follow mm-hmm. that back. So you can get an idea of, say, if you have a paper that's published, you can tell which institutions are using your papers yeah, you and can. using your tools, just which follow is really, the citations. Really yeah, so the way I describe that is you talked earlier on about this snowball effect where you start with one paper that's really key in a field and follow the articles it cites. Now, that allows you to go backwards in time, the things that people had said before this paper. But these databases allow you to also, as you say, go forwards in time, see what happened since that paper. Well, I found it very useful for getting an idea of impact, which is the mm. kind of latest buzzword in the UK at the moment, <laughs> uh, after resilience, of course. Mm-hmm. So yeah, impact. And that's quite a difficult one to pin things on because it happens after you've done your research and maybe years down the line mm. and you need some way of quickly identifying it, particularly when you have a deadline to upload all of the state of the research fish. Of course. The other thing that could be really nice about that is, when, as we mentioned earlier on, when you discover somebody that seems to be doing a lot of research in something that's relevant to what you're doing and you want to find out more about them, what else have they done, what else is useful, it enables you to do that. The only challenge is that sometimes people have names that are very common and then that makes it really, really like Andrew Page, for example. Oh, that's a very common name, unfortunately. <laughs> Trying to narrow down which Andrew Page is this. Or is Andrew Page that works at the Quadrum Institute the same Andrew Page that used to work at the Sanger Institute? Nope, absolutely not. Um, so we there are ways around that, of course, by using identifiers. And, and you can also, within these databases, tell it, actually, these two Andrew Pages are the same person. Please merge all these records. As a first port of call, using your middle name when you publish is a, a very, very good idea. It narrows it down a bit, absolutely. Not completely. I think I think there's another Andrew J. Page oh, there's there. plenty of Andrew J. Pages out there. <laughs> <laughs> but if you use something called Orchid, that enables a lot more of this because that's independent of all of these platforms. Actually, most of these platforms will have their own identifier, author identifier. I'm not convinced by those. I'm more convinced by Orchid because it's sitting outside of all of these proprietary ones. Yeah, I've signed up to Orchid and it's very, very useful. And you don't sign up through your institution. You sign up usually through your through your personal login or th- certainly that's advised. Yeah. So when you move around, as all academics do, it can follow you without having to, you know, because you lose access to your email and things like that when you leave a job. Yeah, exactly. But it, it's quite useful. And also, it seems to be these days mostly on autopilot. You know, once you sign up and you link your ORCID ID, mm-hmm. when you publish a paper, you know, you link it there and it all kind of flows in automatically. You don't have to sit there typing stuff manually into a system. That's right. And it'll even be picked up then more easily by um, things like we use Symplectic to manage our research information. So it, when it comes to returning for the ref, we're able to say these authors have all these papers. The database we're using for that is a Symplectic one. There are other ones as well. One thing I, I like about it is that it actually links to Web of Science and Scopus. Mm. So actually, once you link your author information to that ORCID ID, then that goes on autopilot as well, and it fixes a lot of the mistakes that are that can creep in through those databases. Exactly, it makes life much easier. One thing I don't like though is having to maintain multiple profiles. So. Mm-hmm. 
you have your Google Scholar, which of course doesn't link in with ORCID, unfortunately, and you have to go and sign up for Google and manually curate that. I know stuff can be automatically populated, but you really do need to manually create it. And then you have ResearchGate, which is yet another system, which I don't use generally myself. I signed up for it ages ago, created a profile and haven't looked at it since because I don't want to maintain all of these things. It's just too much effort in the long run. Yeah, I'm the same and there's I have a fundamental problem with ResearchGate and Academia.edu, which I, both of which I joined to explore and see what they were like. The issue is that because those are not really curated or managed or there's no guidance around what you put up there, there's lots of people putting up the version that their publisher will not allow them to put up. Oh, no. So they end up getting takedown notices. I would rather use the more sustainable approaches like the preprint servers or the institutional repositories for making the open access versions available. I guess to try to sell ResearchGate certainly as a social network for yeah. research, which, okay, I don't need another social network. Thank no. you very much. I'm with you on that one. I've learned quite a bit tonight and... I know in future, I'm not just going to use Google Scholar. I'll maybe, you know, expand things slightly and have a wider look around when I'm looking for resources and use all of these tools that are available to me because I know our library already subscribes to many of these things. Yeah, and speaking of your library, I'm sure your librarians can probably help you make the most out of these databases or anybody listening that doesn't happen to be married to a librarian, maybe go befriend your local librarian and get them to show you how to get the most out of the things that you have access to. Yeah, librarians are great. I might be biased though. (laughs) I'm definitely biased. Anyway... Thank you very much for listening. See you again soon. Thank you for listening to Research Pages. Please rate and subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. The views expressed in this podcast are our own opinions and do not represent the views of the University of Cambridge or the Quadrum Institute.